You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. And happy Sunday. We're, we're glad to be worshiping with you. Mothers, we want you to know uh, how much we love you. We honor you today. You have such an important role in the body of Christ, and you have such a high calling from God. And we want you to know that we recognize that, and we want you to know that we love you and honor you today. At the end of service, make sure that you're prepared now. We're going to be taking communion. And for the most part, every Sunday from here on out, we're going to be taking communion. As many of you know, this was a really fundamental part of how we did our gatherings when we were gathering in person. And so we want to bring that back into our services. And so uh, if you have picked up communion elements from the church or you have prepared them at home, please have them ready because we're going to take communion at the end of the message. The next thing I want to remind you of is that this week we put out our plan to reopen our church. It's a tentative plan. It has three stages. If you haven't seen that uh, message or email of any kind, we do encourage you, go to our church's website. It's right there on the front page of the website. And you can also go on our YouTube channel. There's a video in which I explain it. But we want you to know uh, how we are prayerfully and carefully planning to move forward with reopening our church, hopefully in the nearer than later future. Today, I want to invite up the person who's going to be bringing our sermon, our message today, his name is Brian Lim. Brian, you can come on over. Brian is one of the leaders of our youth ministry here at Whitefields. Brian and his wife, Christy, they lead our young adults community group. And you're expecting your first baby. Congratulations. So, guys, let's receive the word, God's word, and through Brian. Thank you. If you could please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for this time of worship, this, this Mother's Day, Lord, and the time to celebrate the mothers and the role that they've played in all of our lives, Lord. And we just pray that you'll be speaking through me this morning, that you'll be filling me with your words, your truth, uh, your wisdom, uh, that it may be edifying to build up the body of believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, happy Mother's Day again. It's such an honor to be uh, able to share a message this morning on uh, such a precious day where we get to celebrate our mothers and the role that they played in raising us and shaping us into the people that we are, and especially if they played an important role in shaping us in our faith walk as well. Now, today's sermon is titled Teaching the Truth, and it'll be coming from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Turn there in your Bibles. I'll give you a little background on the book of 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy was a letter written by Paul to none other than Timothy, who would have guessed. And this letter is addressed to Timothy while he is ministering to the church uh, in Ephesus. His role there was one of a, very much a respected leader who was given authority over the church to make decisions for both appointing the overseers and the elders of the church there. Now, we know that Timothy at this point was fairly young. He gets addressed in this letter as a young man, and it's about dated eight to ten years after he joined Paul's uh, mission. So we know that Timothy started his missionary journey uh, with Paul when he was a young teenager, which is something that stood out to me as I've studied Timothy as well. Through this letter, it's really great just to see how Paul is encouraging and instructing Timothy on how to lead a body of believers. And 
it's important for a church to know how to do that, but it's also important for each and every one of us because we are called to lead people to Christ as well. As we study this text, the three main points that really stuck out to me as they relate to teaching the truth are the calling of a teacher, the purpose of the law, and how grace brings God the glory. At this time, we're going to go ahead and read through our text. And again, that's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 17. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul starts off by instructing us and laying out for us what the calling of a teacher is. He says that pretty clearly in verse 5 when he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Being a teacher is one of the highest callings that we can be called to. We're all called to teach in order to love one another, to encourage one another, build each other up, edify, and to allow us to grow in our walk with Christ and our relationship with him. Now, not everyone's called to be a teacher in a formal capacity, whether that's be a preacher, a Sunday school teacher, a public school teacher, or you know, a leader within the church per se, but we are all called to teach. And God puts people in all of our lives to teach and instruct whether it's you're a mom and you get to teach your children, which I know my mom played a huge role in my life in instructing me in my faith as well. And, or your father also having the opportunity to teach your children or you're instructed and God puts friends in your life or coworkers or whoever, our extended family members. These are all people who we are instructed to teach. And it's important that when we teach them, we're teaching them the truth. And that truth is the love of Christ. And the truth is to encourage them and to build them up. Paul tells us what the truth is, but he also instructs us in ways not to teach. Not only ways not to teach, but traits and teachers that we should look out for. Things to avoid that can lead us astray. The first thing that we see him instructing against comes up in verses 3 and 4 when he says, I urged you, Timothy, to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And we also see him continuing that in chapter 6, or verse 6, when he says, certain persons, by swerving from these, which is teaching the truth, 
have wandered away into vain discussions. The first point there that Paul makes and the first warning he gives us is against false teachers. That's so important because false doctrines or different doctrines, as it's said in, in this translation, lead people astray, right? They are lies. They can't save. And as such, they also can't build people up and edify them. Furthermore, when people are claiming to have a new word or something that they say, look at this teaching that I have that has never been heard before. Um, it's often something to try to draw attention to themselves instead of attention to God. God is the ultimate teacher of his truth. And as such, when we are teaching the truth, the attention and the glory should be going to him and not to anybody else, including ourselves. But these different and false teachings tend to draw the attention to us instead. And we know that, that whenever somebody says that I have a new teaching, that it's most definitely false, right? Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. We have the whole counsel of God, his entire word, his entire truth in the Bible. And if it's not in there, then it's not truth. The next thing that we see Paul warning against are teachers who are uh, straying from teaching the truth by focusing on myths and endless genealogies. Now, these myths and endless genealogies, scholars think that uh, during this time, there's a lot of myths that arose from, were derived from the Old Testament history and teachings and uh, traditions. Now, these aren't true myths, obviously, because myths are false. And also the endless genealogies, there's arguments over, you know, who is a good Jew? Who is a true Jew based on their lineage? Things that, you know, you can go on and on and argue and enter into these vain discussions that, that don't mean anything. More prevalent in today's time are the non-core doctrines that are taught and are found in the Bible as well. These are things such as, is God primarily free will or predestination? You know, is speaking in tongues in front of the body of believers, is that okay? Is that edifying? Some of you might not even have heard of some of these topics before. And that's exactly what makes them non-core doctrines, is that if you've never heard of these, you can still know Jesus Christ. You can still have a saving relationship with him, and it doesn't have any stand bearing on your standing before God. And that's the important thing of there, and what makes them so vain in discussing, right? And they're divisive uh, arguments that people are very opinionated about, and they aren't edifying to the body of believers to bring up unity in Christ, and they aren't important to our salvation itself. Now, these doctrines, these non-core doctrines are still found in the Bible, so it's important to study them and to know them. But it's also important to be okay with coming to scripturally based interpretations that differ from one another. And it's not something that you should be uh, fighting or arguing or being divided by, right? You should still be willing to enter into fellowship and worship with somebody who has a different opinion on how much predestination plays a role in our salvation. And again, when people are teaching on these things and focusing on these non-core doctrines instead of the truth, what they're doing is they're distracting from the truth. They're drawing the attention back to themselves. And in these lies, they're leading people away from a saving faith in Christ as well. Now, Jesus speaks out very strongly about leading his people away from God, away from him. It's a sin that will be punished very severely. So it's important that we know the truth to be able to teach the truth to the, those who we are called to teach. You might be thinking after these stern warnings that Paul is giving us that being called to, a teach, to teach is terrifying. Now, it's not the case. Um, we don't have to be worried about messing up because if we are walking with God earnestly and faithfully, he will give us the words to speak. 
we know that God keeps his promises and he promises that he will fill us with the Holy Spirit and that he will work through us regardless of how eloquent our words may or may not be. That's the beauty of it, is that it's God working through us and not us working for God. Now we have the privilege to join God in his good works that he does through us. And that's what's so amazing about it. The next thing that we see Paul covering is the law and its purpose and how it relates to teaching the truth. Paul talks about this starting in verse eight, and he starts off by saying about the law. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Right away, we see that based on what Paul's saying, there are good and bad uses for the law. To understand the good uses, we're first gonna look at some of the ways that the law is not supposed to be used. We know that the law is not imperfect, but the law itself is perfect. The imperfections and the inabilities and the shortcomings of the law come from ourselves, who we are broken and are sinners. As such, the law cannot be used to obtain salvation. And the idea of trying to use the law to obtain salvation is called legalism. Jesus teaches on this as well in Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 18 through 22. If you want to turn there and read that with me. And a ruler asked him, speaking to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. There's some pretty bold claims made in that statement. And this rich young ruler, we see him, he has this attitude that he can earn his way to eternal life, right? He's asking Jesus what he must do, what actions must he take, what checkboxes must he check in order to earn eternal life. And Jesus responds, well, first, keep all my commandments, follow the law. Amazingly, this ruler says, well, I have kept these since my youth. Now, we know he was a human like the rest of us, completely imperfect. So he did not, to be clear. But for the sake of argument, let's say that he did. He did keep them from his youth in action, but action alone. Jesus's response to that is one that it's not about just keeping the law by doing the right things, saying the right things, loving the right people, but it's about having the right attitude and the right heart behind it as well. That comes out in Jesus's response when he says, give all you have, sell it all to the poor and come follow me, enter into my ministry with me, walk with me, love God with me. But at great personal cost to you, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to sacrifice your life for the life that Jesus will give you? Now, unfortunately, the rich young ruler turns away in, in, in despair because he's sad and doesn't want to give up his own life. But we are called to do that. We also know that the law, as we know, it can't be used to save us. It also can't be used for us to earn good favor or blessings from God. It is not a transactional system. We can't do enough good deeds, say enough good things, say the right prayers, cash up enough brownie points with the big man upstairs for him to throw us a bone when we're having a bad day. It doesn't work that way. Nowhere in the Bible do we find anywhere resembling a prosperity gospel, especially as it reflects to following the law. If it were true that we could perfectly follow the law and get blessings and good favors from God, then the life of Jesus would make no sense to us. Look at Jesus. He was a man who followed the law perfectly. 
He did not sin. He walked with God. Not only did he do the right things, but he did them with the right attitude, with the right heart to bring God glory, to teach truth, to bring people into a saving salvation. And how did his life end? With riches beyond majesty, with comfort, a beautiful family? No, it ended in a torturous death on a cross. As such, how can we think our futile attempts at keeping the law could end in anything else? How can our faith end in anything other than what Jesus' life ended in? It seems foolish to think that, that we can earn favor in God and that we deserve blessings from God either. Now, by God's grace and his mercy, he gives us these blessings. He gives us a house over our head, a beautiful family to minister to, all those things. But it's not because we earn them. It's out of his abounding love for us that he wants to show us, to allow us to walk into a deeper relationship with him, a deeper understanding of who he is and how much he loves us. Also, we see throughout Paul's teachings is that he focuses a lot of time on these improper uses of the law. It's interesting, too, because the improper uses, legalism, seeking the good benefits from God, that transactional system, those are not new, and they have not gone anywhere either. The idea of the American dream, where we can work hard and earn everything that uh, there is to have, including our salvation, that is not new. That started on July 4th, 1776. But that's something that's been around since Paul was writing this letter. It's been around since uh, the Hebrews left Egypt. It's important to be working hard, and God does not despise hard work, or he does not despise the things, the blessings that America, being one of the wealthiest nations in the world, can provide us. However, it's when we start seeking those things, seeking that, white, that house with the perfect white picket fence and the two and a half kids, instead of seeking God. When we seek those things to, for our salvation, for our fulfillment, we're seeking them for our identity. That's when we're trying to get them to fill a part of our life that is only supposed to be fulfilled by God himself. And that's when they become sinful. Furthermore, we know that people have been adverse to handouts since this time. They are today. They were, when, again, when Paul was writing this letter. We saw that in Paul's time of how just the beggars and the poor and the outcast of society were treated. They were treated as such, right? They, they were outcasts. People wouldn't even look at them. If they saw somebody on the side of the road begging, they would go to the other side and walk out of their way to avoid that person. We see that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? There's a man who was beaten laying on the side of the road, and the priests and the rabbis got as far away as they could to avoid even coming close to this man who was bloody that would have made them ceremonially unclean. Now, we as Americans still do that same thing. I don't know how many times I've seen somebody uh, walking down the street with a homeless person begging, asking for help on the corner, and people won't even give that person the time of day to look up from their phones. I have certainly been guilty of that myself. Because we abhor handouts, we think we can earn it. We can earn everything that there is. But that's just not true. The grace of God, the salvation from Jesus Christ, that is a free gift. That is a handout. We have to come to a point where we can humbly accept that handout. We recognize our need for that handout, for what Jesus did for us when he died on that cross. And that's exactly why Paul spends so much time teaching on how the law is not supposed to be used. It's so that we come to that realization that it is a handout that it can't be earned. We can't follow the law enough to earn God's salvation.
So then, is the law useless? Should we throw out everything that it says? Absolutely not, right? We read that in the call to worship when the psalmist writes in Psalm 19:7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's good for us. It's food for our soul. It tells us and instructs us in how to teach the truth. First off, we know that the law is good for convicting us of sin, for revealing God's heart to us in that manner. Paul writes in Romans 7, 7, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. We know that, you know, the law instructs us in how we should be walking, and it also reveals in our lives the ways that we are not walking in that way that God wants us to be. And it can lead us to repentance, to turn back to God, to fall to our knees and call out to him, to enter into his embrace, because he will be there right with us wherever we are. Furthermore, it gives us such a, a, a much deeper appreciation for what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross when he died for our sins. It teaches us and shows us how far we fell short and how much we need Jesus. And when it does that, we can love him all the more for the great gifts that he has given us, for that great gift of salvation and eternal life that he gives us. And as I said too, it, the law gives us a glimpse into God's heart. It instructs us in the ways and the desires of his heart, the things that he loves, the things that he abhors. And we get the opportunity to love God by following his commandments, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments in John 14, 15. Now that means that we aren't keeping his commandments to earn anything, whether that's salvation or good favor, but we're keeping his commandments to show him that we love him, that that's where our heart is. Right? As a child, if you love your parents, sometimes you'll just joyfully do chores without them even asking them. Now, my mom's probably laughing because I never did that, but it's just showing that love without being asked. You just know what's on their hearts and you do it. That's what God's asking us when he's asking us to follow the law, to know what's on his heart by studying his word and his truth and to follow that and to do that and to teach that. And it's because the law can draw us into such a deep relationship with God is what makes it so reviving for the soul, right? It allows us to enter into his embrace, to know who he is, to know how much he loves us as sinners, and to know that he comes to us when we are at our weakest, our most broken, our most sinful, and he meets us right there. So now that we know what Paul's talking about when he says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, it's also important to look at who the law was written for. Now, Paul lays that out in verses 9 through 11 when he says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We know then that the law is for the lawbreakers, right? That's pretty clear. You can think of it this way too, right? If tomorrow it was written into law that murder became legal, there's no more punishment for going out and killing people. I'm quite confident that everybody listening to this message would not start going around and killing people just because there's no more consequences for it. They don't need a law to tell them that something's wrong. They inherently know that life is valuable, life is precious. And they aren't going to violate that because that law is written on their heart. They don't need some piece of paper 
somebody in a position of authority telling them this. It's not for those people who the law is written for, but it's the people who will break the law. Paul calls them the sinners, the murderers, the cheaters, the perjurers, the liars, the ungodly, the unholy. It's humbling to recognize that we are those people and that the, the law was written for each and every one of us. Now, it might be tempting to think, well, Brian, I haven't killed anybody. I don't lie very much. I have never owned any slaves, so I'm good, right? Well, no. Again, Jesus instructs this in, in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the law. And again, how it's not about doing the right things, but having the right attitude in our hearts. He says, and teaches that if anyone looks at their brother with anger or hatred in their hearts, they have already committed murder. Now you're right. You probably haven't killed anybody, but I am sure, like myself, you have looked at somebody with the deep anger and hatred in your heart for one reason or another. I was not following the law in the spirit that Jesus desires to me to be doing. I am the sinner, and you are the sinner who the law was written for. You are the sinner, too, that Jesus died for. And that precisely is what this passage is trying to get us to realize, is that we are the broken people who the law was written for. It's not to make us feel bad, but it's to bring us to our knees humbly before God so that we may recognize how much we need him. Which brings us to our last point of how grace brings God or glory to God. Now we see this starting in verse 12 when Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. This grace that's bringing God the glory is the grace of Jesus Christ, how he came to die to cover our sins and pay the price. Not only that, God gives us the Holy Spirit, which is his presence in us. And by that very presence in us, he gives us and appoints us to a work in his service. And that work is teaching the truth. We're all called to be teachers of the truth to someone, whether it's our, our kids, our friends, our parents even, our coworkers, just anybody who God puts in our lives. He will instruct us and, and work in miraculous ways that we never would have seen coming and lead us to teaching the truth to these people. And it's through that that he, he is able to do his mighty work through us broken people. And that's what brings him so much glory, is that he is able to work through us, us lowly servants who are sinners and constantly fall, constantly break the law, constantly sin. And yet he is still able to work through us and do his mighty works. He is able to work through us to teach the truth to people so that they too might know it. In verse 16, that also really highlights how much glory this brings God. Paul writes, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. As Nick mentioned, I'm not a father yet, but my first child is on, on its way. And I've spent enough time around kids to know uh, that they can be fairly stubborn sometimes. And we are in no way dissimilar from that when it comes to serving the Lord. I just love that, that how Paul writes that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. And how much glory does that bring to him and to God? That no matter how much we mess up, no matter how stubborn we want to be, even though we're wrong, he is still perfectly patient with us 
to appoint us a good work to do, a truth to teach, and people to teach it to. And that is such a beautiful and glorifying thing. Again, in that perfect patience, he uses us where we are. We don't have to know or have all the perfect words to say. We don't have to be some great orator. Some of the most impactful times that I have taught people have been when I've been fumbling and stumbling and just really struggling to get the truth out of my mouth. And, you know, after I finish talking, I just go, wow, that made no sense to me. And I'm the one who said it. And yet God was able to use that still to impact people's hearts, to get them to know him more, to draw them into that truth of God. We spend a lot of time about teaching the truth and instructing people in the truth, but it's also vitally important to make sure that we know what that truth is and why it is true. There are a lot of truths out there, right? People say, live your truth, do what's on your heart, do what the, your feelings tell you, and these are not truth. They're fleeting, shifting realities that are on a foundation of sand, right? What's good one day based on society and the world is wrong tomorrow. But we know that the truth of the gospel, the truth from God that comes from his word and a saving relationship with him is on a firm foundation. It is consistent. We read, we can study his word that takes place over thousands of years and see how consistent God is from the beginning of time till today. He keeps all of his promises that he lays out here. And furthermore, this truth, what makes it so great is that it promises us something that nothing else in this world does, right? This world promises, says, and tells us that if you work hard enough, it might work out. But the gospel says you don't have to do anything. God loves you. You are precious to him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, for you, and for everyone else. All you have to do is turn to him and accept him as your Lord and Savior. Jesus died to pay the price, and we know he paid it because he rose again. He didn't stay in that grave. And that is the truth. All we have to do is recognize that we are the sinners and that we need him to pay our debt that we can't. I love how Paul writes that and says that in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul understood what it meant to be spiritually poor. He understood what Jesus taught when he said, blessed are the meek and the poor, he understood that he needed Jesus. He of all people too should know what it's like to be able to obtain that self-righteousness. He was a Pharisee. He talks about that in Philippians when he says, I kept the law perfectly. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He had all of those boxes checked of all the people that think that should have been able to save themselves. He should have been. And yet we see him saying right here, I was the foremost sinner. I was the foremost murderer, enslaver, liar, perjurer, cheater. He recognized that he could not save himself and he needed Jesus Christ to do that. And that is the truth that we are called to teach one another. And it's through the Holy Spirit that works in us, that is filled with us, that fills us, that we get to walk with God and enter into him, into the service that he appoints for us. All we have to do is accept him as our Lord and Savior. And then he will put the go those good works before us and he will empower us and strengthen us to go and perform them as well, to bring him glory so that we may go forth teaching the truth and loving those that he calls us to love. If you could please bow your heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
We just praise you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, for that truth of the gospel, that he died for our sins, that that is good and true, that we know that the price has been paid for each and every one of us. And we know that uh, you called us to teach the truth. You've given us the truth. You've instructed us in the truth. You give us your word so that we might know and be able to study and learn who you are, Lord, so that we may love those around us, encourage them to edify them, and to bring them into a deeper relationship with you. And I pray on this day that we get to celebrate our mothers, Lord, uh, that we'll thank them for the role that you've uh, blessed them in our lives. And just pray that, that we'll just be uh, seeking to teach that truth to one another, to love them, to encourage each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yes, our sins say amen. His 
a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.